Welcome, everybody, to the ongoing nightclub interview series, where my special guest today truly is the renowned and esteemed teacher, Sharon Salzberg. As many of you know, Sharon is an absolute treasure in the world of meditation and one of the original teachers at the heart of the mindfulness revolution in the West. As you'll see, she combines decades of study, practice, and teaching with the most grounded and practical presentation of meditation in our world today. Our conversation was really all about, or mostly about, the recent political upheaval and how we can relate to it. This particular discussion doesn't hold anything back. It gets to the heart of so much of what's actually happening these days. Meditation and spirituality have so much to offer right now. And Sharon, as you'll see, is the perfect person to deliver these insights. Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here, and I am absolutely thrilled to be able to spend the next few minutes with really one of the great leaders of the meditation movement in the Western world, uh, Sharon Salisbury. It's a real honor and delight to be able to spend some time with her. And so, as usual, I will do a very brief, somewhat formal introduction, and then we're just going to jump right in into a bunch of really hot current topics. So, Sharon Salzberg is a meditation pioneer and industry leader, a world-renowned teacher, and New York Times best-selling author. As one of the first to bring meditation and mindfulness into mainstream American culture over 45 years ago, her relatable, demystifying approach has inspired generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. Sharon is co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barre. Is it Barre or Barre? I can never. It, it's Barry. Just Barry. Like the guy named Barry. After all these years, I would know that. <laughs> Barry, Massachusetts. And the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, now in its second edition. Her seminal work, Loving Kindness, and her newest book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, released in September of 2020 from Flatiron Books. Sharon's secular modern approach to Buddhist teachings is sought after at schools, conferences, and retreat centers worldwide. And her podcast, The Meta Hour, has amassed over 3 million downloads. So Sharon, really thank you so deeply for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. We're thrilled to have you. Well, it's, it's a great delight to talk to you. After all this time of like reading about you, <laughs> yeah, same with me. We we we've we've crossed in cyberspace and we've shared platforms and yeah. community uh, uh, events together. But it's the first time we really had a chance to connect, and I, I'm really honored and thrilled to be able to do this with you. So, I have to share with you. I I had some prepared ideas, which maybe if we have time we can come back to. But, um. In the light of everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks, and also in connection to your marvelous book, which I'm which I'm reading and just absolutely loving, uh, the book on real change, to me it, it you know it seems almost disingenuous not to address this kind of colossal elephant in the room, right? Uh, political, social discord, and the like. And so, one of the ways I want to talk to you about this, Sharon, is in fact there's there's so much. Um, kind of subliminal traffic in the in the meditation world not so much about being politically correct but 
um, I playfully refer to it as being spiritually correct. <laughs> that, that anger doesn't really have a rightful place on the spiritual path, that wrath is almost anti-spiritual. And so, um, in your experience, how are you dealing, how are you relating to what has transpired in the last couple of weeks, and how can we um, aid our listeners, because I'm getting so many questions, I'm sure, as you are, in terms of how do we relate to this um, three-ring circus that's going on right now. So um, let's start with that and see where that takes us. Sure. Um, well, there's so many levels to that. You know, I think about um, a distinction we sometimes try to make in the meditative world between feeling something and being consumed by it, especially to the degree that it's guiding your actions. You know, that's, that's what's motivating the thing you say, the thing you don't say, you hold back from, or the thing you do or you refrain from doing. And, and they're very different. And so uh, I think sometimes people morph them together in the spiritual world, for example, and think, well, I'm bad because I feel this. I shouldn't feel anger. I shouldn't have this come up. Um, this, is, this is the wrong thing. Or in my case, I just celebrated a an outrageous anniversary. I've been meditating for 50 years now. Oh, congratulations. I thank you. I started, it's like unbelievable, really. I started uh, January 7th, 1971. And, oh, wow. Um, you know, it's spooky. It's like I don't think of myself that way, like that old, or, you know, <laughs> that practiced or anything. But anyway, um, you know, it would be easy for me to say, you've been meditating for 50 years. What? What's that still doing here? Right. Um, you know, and so I think it's it's really crucial that we allow every feeling the dignity of its own existence. We feel what we feel. The thing about getting lost in anger, getting consumed by anger, is that it's tricky. You know, there's a lot of uh, energy there that's positive, and there's often a lot of courage there. Like, we know just from, like, a meeting or... Uh, some get-together of people. Sometimes it's the angriest person in the room that's the most honest. Like, look at that! And everyone else is studiously looking the other way. Like, I don't want to look at that. Right. Let's not bring that up, you know? So, um, but the downside of it is that, uh, like in the Buddhist psychology, they say anger is like a forest fire, which can burn up its own support. Mm. You know, it can damage us so much if we get consumed by it. And like a forest fire, it might leave us very far from where we want to be. It's like, as much as there's that cutting through energy in the anger, there's also a kind of delusion sometimes. It's like, if you think of the last time you were really, really angry at yourself, however long ago that was, that's not a time where we're likely to think, I did five great things that same morning. I said that stupid thing in the meeting. You know, those five great things are gone. And so we may not see options. We may not see resolutions. We may not see a path of action, actually, in, in the midst of that kind of anger. So the very delicate task is to kind of retrieve the energy of it and that courage yeah. without getting sucked into it. Now, this is not easy, but... Um, you know, I think it takes a very powerful exploration 
and a very personal exploration. Like, what do you think the opposite is? You know, is it being complacent? Is it letting things go? Is it, what do you think of love or compassion? Do you think they're weak and sort of sniveling and, you know, obsequious? Or do you think they are powerful? Um, and what's your experience of them, actually, let alone what you think? And so, um, if we are willing to do that kind of exploration, I think we may see lots of sources of strength. And, and that, you know, to sort of go back more directly to your question, is like mm-hmm. a lot of what I have been thinking about this last uh, week and a half, if, for example. Um, I wrote the book Real Change before even the pandemic, and I turned it in. Um, and then once the pandemic hit, the publisher decided to postpone publication. So instead of coming out in June, it was coming out in September. And uh, in that interim period, a friend of mine was reading it to excerpt it, and he said, you know, he liked the book, but he would read the examples and he'd think, that's what made you anxious? Wait till you see what's coming. And so I went back to the publisher and I said, is it okay if I write a new preface? and just sort of try to ground the book in what's happening. And they said, okay. So the the most prevalent question I asked myself in that period to be able to write the preface was, what's still true? Yeah. You know, in the midst of chaos and disruption yep. and anxiety and grief and, you know, so much loss, like, what's still true? What's intact? What can I count on? What can I rely on? And um, in the... Uh, Sanskrit language, the word dharma, which is so often translated as the truth or the nature of things, or sometimes the Buddhist teaching actually means that which supports us. That which holds, yeah. You know, and and so I really tried to look deeply at that for myself, like what's holding me together, you know, and like what's still true, what's intact. And I thought of um, the saying of the Buddhas, later echoed by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law, which I always thought was kind of quirky. Like this right. is, you know, the Buddha is like Mister Impermanence and <laughs> saying this is an eternal law. But I really do believe that because I don't think of love as weak or you know giving in or I think of it as extremely radical and powerful and and motivating. And so anyway, you know, so like I, I looked at not the violent photos or videos, but I looked at some of the earlier photos um, of people screaming in the in the Capitol, you know, this is my house, it's our house, you can't uh, you can't take it away and I, I asked myself still true? <laughs> hatred will never cease by hatred? Like, still believe that? You know? Oh. Uh, and I do. Um, I have also thought of uh, I'm not going to do justice to this, but James Baldwin has a quotation, uh, something like, if you can look underneath the anger, you find the pain. Yes, exactly. Yep. And it, they just looked like really like lost people. And I felt the compassion. On the other hand, you know, I think um, one of the really uh, difficult things for me in these last four years, there have been a couple that sort of relate very much my own, you know, personal life, especially my earlier life as a child, where um, there were just a lot of things kept from me as people tried to 
be kind and, you know, but nonetheless, it didn't really work that way. Uh, you know, and so first of all, deceit yeah. uh, is very, very hard for me. And actions not bearing consequences is very hard for me. Yeah. And I think they've been two hallmarks of, of the last four years. And so when I say, you know, hatred does not cease by hatred. I don't mean that people should not have consequences of their actions. And these actions are very severe and frightening. And uh, I think that there have to be consequences. For sure, for sure. And you know, as, as you well know, in the, in the Tibetan kind of Vajrayana language, anger is part of the Vajra family, right? Which is Kind of the the alchemical aspect or tantric component of that is this you know the clarity the incisiveness mm -hmm. the the, um, the sharpness of actually seeing things you know Manjushri's blade mm -hmm. it can then be used and and there's also you know in the, the four karmas the four kind of enlightened activities that somewhat um, ironically do not create karma um, pacifying enriching magnetizing and then when nothing else works the very viable tough love wrath of destruction that, that it has that place and, and so I'm, I'm not necessarily starting our conversation with espousing these types of approaches but um, i think they're incredibly helpful to bring out into the open right off the bat because sharon when i look into my own experience and, and feel into my own anger i i feel it to be I find it to be one of the most reifying and solidifying of all emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the that's the massive near enemy that, you know, anger and fear, which are kissing cousins, unfortunately, there's nothing that makes me feel more solid and real. And so, like you, when I see these people screaming and beating, you know, these videos that are just so hard to watch, yeah, I, I find it's also when I work in death and dying that when things are falling apart for all these people that, that don't have jobs that are you know struggling anger is one of the most reconstituting of all emotions it can mm -hmm, make you feel mm -hmm. more real than almost anything else when everything is falling apart and so i think that understanding psycho-spiritual understanding of it is really important because otherwise we do meet anger with anger instead of with compassion and mm -hmm. i couldn't agree more with you that really love is the most powerful force in the universe i mean parenthetically as you know we use it on the path for harnessed in, um, under the rubric of devotion for the purposes of awakening altogether. So mm -hmm. there's definitely a place for tough love. There's definitely a place for anger in what's happening now. But here's, here's a question that I really want to throw your way in terms of what you just said. How do we help others? And again, because we have to be a little bit careful um, in terms of what we may not be saying. But when I look at what's happening um, we're living in a world of fake news. We're living in an alternate reality. I, I listened to some of these interviews with the QAnon folks, and it's really chilling what mm -hmm. they believe wholeheartedly. How can we, or in fact, can we, help people reconnect to reality? Yeah, that's, <laughs> as we say, that's a tough question. I, I, uh, I actually don't know about the how. I think about that a lot. And, um, you know, it's hard, like going back to James Baldwin's quote, it's hard to look at one's pain, you know, and any meditator knows that, that, uh, oh, look at that. Now, I've done 50,000 things to avoid this feeling. Look at that. Here it is, you know. Um, 
And it's difficult. We do it in the context of community, hopefully, or with uh, a very trusting relationship with a guide, with a teacher, um, or at least a sense of inspiration, you know, so that we don't feel so alone in, in the face of, of the suffering that we uncover. And it's not just suffering. We uncover tremendous joy, too, and uh, rejoicing and really, really beautiful things as well. So, um, you know, how to, how to provide some of that sense of context. It's, it's hard for me to say. All, all I feel assured of is that my motivation has to be right. And, um, like, when I sit with anger, um, which is one of the teachings, you know, like, uh, <clears throat> in, in the world of mindfulness, to be able to be with these different feelings in a different way. And um, the first thing is to kind of pivot, because when we have a very strong emotion going, we tend to be, as you know, we tend to be fascinated or fixated on the object, on the condition, mm. on the circumstance. Mm. We so rarely kind of turn our awareness around, like, what does anger feel like? Mm-hmm. You know, what is what does desire feel like? You know, so sticking with the anger for a moment, like, what does it feel like in my body? And it's like we take an interest in the feeling itself. And, and then we can watch the anger movie and we see that, because these feelings are so complex, we see the different strands of things that are going along with the anger, you know, moments of fear, moments of sadness, moments of grief. And almost always when I've been able to do that, I come to a sense of helplessness, which is like at the core. And then the anger is is what I am used to in order to not feel helpless, which is such a terrible feeling. And if I can get there, then I just take some action. It's like that's my commitment. You know, it may be very small, but it's doing something. And, um, you know, like some of those people that I've read about who were – uh, in the capital, um, rioting, and uh, you know they they were uh, bankers, you know, music teachers. It was like uh, it wasn't the uh, like totally downtrodden of of society, but I would bet anything there's a kind of psychological helplessness that was was cooking there. You know, like feeling so unworthy in a way. Yeah. yeah, or being told they were so unworthy for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I think those those types of extremists really come from extreme states of mind, um, and and I think I couldn't agree more with you, Sharon. I'm reminded of uh, one of the, the low jong or mind training slogan slogans when they talk about working with these really high voltage energies. Is is what I do is uh, like you said is I will. Um, drop the object that triggers the energy and take ownership of the mm-hmm. energy itself. Um, that kind of just simply by staying with it, I, I can start to transform it. I'm staying in, in the very crucible of my body. And so I'd like to uh, talk to you a little bit more about the role of, of connectivity that way, that, that maybe we can help others reconnect to reality by ourselves establishing a deeper connection to our own realities, that, that maybe from that stands um, the skillful means for relating to others 
will become apparent, but again, but again, maybe not. And so, what do you see? This may seem um, somewhat a circuitous way to get to this topic. What is the role of the body in this? In other words, like I was alluding to earlier, staying embodied, having the courage to be in, in the blast furnace of these conflicting emotions ourselves, mm-hmm. making you know loving kindness, which you teach so much about. Mm-hmm. I think it takes tremendous maitri metta to actually do even that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, can you talk to us a little bit about using the body as a crucible for transformation and, and the wisdom of waking down? into the body to stay with these very difficult emotions acting relating um to them instead of from them you know not everybody you know uh so readily feels emotions within their body i think it's it's almost like a training for many and that's fine um we do tend to be kind of disembodied like that quotation from james joyce that is so um oh right mr often duffy. used mr duffy lived a short distance from his body yeah And I've taught walking meditation, for example, to more than one person who could not feel their feet against the ground so they looked down. Oh, wow. You know, and it's it's just habit. It's the way we're conditioned very often. But over time, I think we can learn to feel um, these different emotions within the body. And it's just useful because uh, there's less judgment, there's less... um, elaboration it's just more of a direct experience it's like oh this is what it feels like and uh, we can actually use those different feelings as a feedback system in life like i have a friend who describes herself as the kind of person who could never say no and so at one point in her meditation she brought up those kinds of scenarios in her mind where she'd be asked to do something and she really didn't have the time but she couldn't bring herself to say yes, and she felt what was happening in her body. And she recognized there's a certain feeling that actually came in that moment. It was almost a kind of wave of panic in her stomach, and like, they won't like me anymore, you know. Uh, But it was much more um, emphatic in her body than it was in her thoughts. And, And she used that so that the next time, say, she was at work, and somebody asked her that very kind of question... Uh, she'd feel that sensation and she'd say, I have to get back to you later about that. It's like she couldn't bring herself to actually say no, but she could buy time and then she could say no. You know, so, uh, you know, and that's different than sort of having an identification with the feeling that I'm such an angry person. Why am I so angry? I shouldn't be angry after all these years of meditating. I've been in therapy for so long. For God's sake, you know, you wouldn't think I'd be still so angry. No one else is angry. I'm the only person, you know, it's just like on and on. But if we're just feeling it in the body, it's much more direct. I've also read, I read somewhat mixed things, but I like the first thing I read, which was um, that research was beginning to show that interoception, that um, awareness of sensation within your body, not just like holding a hot cup of tea or something that's more external, but feeling within your body is a precursor to empathy, uh, which makes sense to me because there is that resonance within when we look at somebody and we feel empathy. It's not necessarily a cognitive empathy, like, oh, I understand, that must be really hard, you know? Right. It's that vibratory resonance that is being sensitive to feeling in your body yeah really connecting being honest with with the truth of your own feelings um and and so you know very much along these lines is 
this notion that we you were alluding to earlier, Sharon, that you know the importance of feeling it but not feeding it, mm-hmm. um, relating relating to the energy without either indulging in it or repressing it, and, mm-hmm. and that's not mm-hmm. such an easy thing to do, right? Because I mean, our, our default mechanisms are one or the either, are one or either one of those to either run with it and indulge it or to repress it, in which case, of course, then it becomes symptomatic and lashes out. So in, in your own experience, um, when you're working in your own practice, what else can you share with us along those lines to deal with not just anger, but, you know, the, 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 the absolute cascade of emotions that's taking place now? And also even, as we were talking before we came on, on air, so to speak, um, for me, tempering, if that's even an appropriate thing to do, the excitement that I feel with the new administration coming mm-hmm. in. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not always kind of negative situations that I think we need to relate to more skillfully, but almost dealing with, you know, the parents of the eight worldly concerns altogether, you know, skillful relationship to both hope and fear mm-hmm. and, and the progeny of both of those. Well, in terms of fear, you know, I go back to, um, saying it's like a training, and I, I know some people don't like the word training. You know, it's a cultivation, and uh, and that's a very hopeful thing in my mind. You know, that there's a path, and that and that we can practice, and we can learn skills that maybe we didn't grow up learning, and uh, in terms of emotions or feelings, and and in terms of everything. And um, I I've often said that my favorite definition of mindfulness came from an article I read in the New York Times many years ago about one of the early pilot programs bringing mindfulness into the classroom. So this was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland, California. And the journalist asked one of the kids, so he's in fourth grade, so let's say he's nine or ten years old, they said, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And and the, the young boy responded, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought, that is a great definition of mindfulness, you know? That's street level, isn't it? Because it's exactly what you were describing. It was, first of all, knowing you're feeling angry when you're starting to feel angry, not after you've sent the email, you know, not after you've responded or lashed out. And it also implies exactly really what you were describing, a balanced relationship to the anger. Because if we get overwhelmed by it and identified with it and and uh, sort of defined by it, we'll probably hit a lot of people in the mouth because right. life can be really difficult. But if we hate it and we fear it and we're ashamed of it and we try to repress it, we get tighter and tighter and tighter and then we'll explode. And so it just doesn't work. We talk about mindfulness as a place in the middle where we can connect fully Mm -hmm. without either getting overwhelmed nor pushing away. And that takes time, you know, but, and some things, of course, are easier than others, uh, no doubt. But um, we actually can cultivate that with a lot of kindness toward ourselves. Don't blame yourself for anything that you're feeling. Um, And, uh, just practice. It actually makes a difference. Now, hope is a tricky thing, you know, because um, of course that word also can be used differently. Sometimes when we say hope, I think we really do mean attachment. Like mm-hmm. it's going to have to work out in exactly this way, and nothing else will do. And, mm-hmm. uh, which is a trap, of course, of of expectation and then frustration usually. Um, but I think 
as distorted and weird a relationship as many of us have to pain, painful mm -hmm. sensation in the body, painful emotion, painful situation, we also can have a really kind of weird and distorted relationship to pleasure yeah. or delight or wonder or joy or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes we're so distracted we don't even take it in. Sometimes we have these impossible standards. You know, like I, I often tell the story about a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. many years ago taking me to this area uh, the basin where they have many, many cherry trees that are planted, and when they all bloom, that's cherry blossom season. So she was really determined to get me there, and, and we got there. And I just thought it was so beautiful, like all these delicate pink blossoms and so many of them. And, and then my friend said, oh, no, it's past the peak. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I'm having a bad experience. Right. This isn't good enough. And I also think in a time like this, where there's so much suffering, maybe our own, maybe others, you know, it it feels wrong to let in the joy. And uh, people often say to me they feel guilty, you know, uh, about that. And yet I think we have to look at what resilience really means and how we restore ourselves and what are the consequences of just getting depleted and exhausted and, and the joy will counter that you know it'll give us some energy and inspiration and uh, a lot of things I think we we cast in the light of selfish which are really not they're they're really about restoring and having resilience yeah I mean really beautiful beautifully said one of the reasons I'm harping on this a little bit is because you know in the, in the kind of context of your book on real change mm -hmm. Sharon, when I, when I look into my own experience and I look at what has really catalyzed change in me, it is, in fact, feeling. Um, it's, it's not so much a cognitive or cerebral thing. It's not some philosophical ideology. And even if it was triggered by that, that in and of itself won't do it. I, I change when I feel things. And so, mm -hmm. to me, what we're talking about here is, is completely resonant with your beautiful book, uh, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, Real Change. And so... To me, real change means real feeling. And I guess the reality of, of the feeling is what I'm after. You know, what is it that, that constitutes an authentic connection to ourselves? Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, we, we express towards ourselves what we express to others. And, and so, obviously, when we're doing, or maybe not so obviously, when we're doing this work um, by connecting deeply to ourselves in this way, we connect to everybody else. Because mm -hmm. Everybody has this kind of internal... Mm -hmm landscape so um that to me it's like and if there are any final comments along this you know what else of course you have a beautiful entire book on this what else is integral to um true real change and outside of working with feelings in this authentic way well you know again i wrote i wrote the book before the pandemic so then because my great fear was like i wrote a completely irrelevant book look at that you know like because <laughs> things were so extreme and uh, and yet you know when i look back at it um there there are a lot there's a lot of emphasis on agency you know mm. countering that sense of helplessness and how important i really think it is to do what even seems like a small thing that's right in front of you instead of thinking it could never be enough or you know, it's so meager, and, and just do it. Um, 
and it has a chapter on moving from anger to courage. It has a chapter on moving from grief to resilience and another one on taking in the joy and then one on equanimity. And, and it's the same things. Maybe it's eternal. You know, we're always looking at those qualities because they do sustain us and they transform the nature of our action. And um, in a very immediate sense, you know, uh, I think we... We can connect to our feelings when we can also distinguish um, the feeling from what we might call the add-on. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I'm the only one who ever feels this, or this is the only thing I ever feel. This is the real me. Yeah. What's it going to be like tomorrow? It will be even worse. Or, you know, I spent all that money in therapy. Why is that still here? You know, there are lots of things we might just dump on top of, of the feeling. And if we can distinguish those and relinquish those, then we can come back to what we're feeling. And and that's very healthy, whether it's a painful feeling or a pleasant feeling. Um, so that's part of it. And then in response to something you said that really struck me, I always thought it was one of the weirdest things about meditation in that it looks like it could be the most solitary activity imaginable. Like maybe you sit all alone. Maybe your eyes are closed. But somehow in the process, in the very process, I think we do find a profound connection with others. Yeah. And it, it really brings us to this world of, of interconnection, which is the truth of things. And it's not sentimental or saccharine because it is the truth of things. And it has that kind of power of, of uh, reality, as Bob Thurman would say. You know, it's, it's realistic. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a really big thanks to Sharon for taking time out of her extremely busy schedule to share her vast knowledge, kindness, and wisdom with us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a lot happening these days. But until next time, pleasant dreams.